You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And we are here with our third novel, fourth story of the year, R.V. Raman's A Dire Isle, continuing our Indian ventures. We're covering chapters one to eight of this book this week, and Herds has Flex. challenged me to solve it. Yeah, yeah. We've uh, we've made a bit of a step in our whirlwind tour around the globe. We're still following an Indian author, but now we're in... Bendelkind, I think is how you pronounce mm-hmm. the word. Mm-hmm. We're, we're out in the sticks, um, in the jungles where the wildcats live. Not the sports team, but like actual literal wildcats. So watch out, Detective Athreya. D- don't get cornered by a wild beast. That would be bad. <laughs> this is the second book in the Harith Athreya series after A Will to Kill mm-hmm. and a stretch of thrillers, which herds, I know you've read the first and yeah. most famous of fraudster yeah yeah fraudster ten, is 10 word review <laughs> it's it's good okay hold on i like his attempts to make finance interesting done <laughs> there you it's go good i love it but that's it that's the that's the top and down of it it's a very good mystery but like the finance is it's a lot it's still, it's still finance yeah. it's, it's very strange no but i mean a dire isle i have been loving this it feels to me like avi Rahman had a great time writing this novel mm. it shows in the work to me and the joy is spreading to me it's good it's a great time set in the modern day on the banks of a river at an archaeological yeah. site i mean it's a it's a definitely an attempt by avi Rahman to you know with this series to get into the Christie, like golden age detective fiction mind state, but it doesn't mess about. It gets right into, you know, we're here for financial fraud because of course we are, because Avi Rahman. Like every character we get and every scene we have is very deliberate, which I actually am really, it's very refreshing. We don't mess <laughs> around. And there's not that many twists and turns just for the sake of it, which I'm, I'm enjoying. Basically, Harith Athrea is sent by request of his friend from the previous novel, Liam, Liam Dunn. Liam Dunn, yeah. To go and investigate an archaeological site where the Bronze Runners oh. have been uh, wreaking havoc it's in great. the region yeah. where there's a lot of archaeology going on, fencing off artifacts and stealing things from dig sites with little to no remorse, and there's been very ineffectual attempts to catch them. Yes, yes. And it's kind of unclear at the start of the novel whether the Bronze Runners, which, what a fantastic name. What a fantastic uh, name. You know, whether they're involved in the financial fraud, but simply by virtue of being mentioned, they must figure into the story somehow, you know? I mean, we can get into that in the mystery section. We definitely will. But the, the setup of the crime here is that the director of the archaeological dig miss uh, mrs markan mm as they call her yeah who everybody hates has run off in the middle of the night it seems taken a raft over <laughs> to the cursed isle nas tapu the pride island yes Oh yes, my goodness. And has been clubbed in the back of the head by the large by a mace. Enormous monstrous mace wielding dog of the historical prince who settled there. Well not of years not ago. the prince, but the prince's trusted bodyguard, Bola. Um, which is great. Uh apparently the island is like protected by the this prince and princess who were from opposite religious sides of being Hindu and Muslim, they they mm. ran away to the island, and a, apparently a dozen men shot down a thousand soldiers who came to bring them back. That sort of thing, and it's it's said that they they haunt the island and it's it's cursed, and you don't beat beaches of it. It takes a while for the crime to actually happen. It does. It does. We don't even know why Harith is there until he tells the other character who names Liam Dunn to him. 
as far as we see, he's just there going whitewater rafting with his pals. He's having a great time <laughs> with his friend uh, Sharad Sika and and his daughter Mupriya, who is the true hero of this novel. And there's this fantastic sequence where they get to the end of the whitewater section of the rafting, and uh, Priya goes to take a picture of this island, Nas Tapu, and the boatmen who are with them are like, what are you doing? Stop, you'll get us killed. Yeah, there's like a legend of like, as I mentioned, Bola, but like maybe there's a monster on the island and Mm -hmm. it's very much a case of history being bound up in like almost religious superstition, right? Which is the best kind of mystery. The stuff that happens next kind of isn't a lot. We just learn about this myth about the prince and princess yes, who well. ran away to the island when they were excommunicated by the prince's father. We go to the dig site, learn about what's been going on. We meet the cast of characters who are at the dig site. And M.M. disappearing and being killed is basically like the last two chapters we get. It all happens really quickly. Yeah, I mean, M.M. we only meet in one scene and it's the scene where we, it, it's a very classic scene. It's the party scene yeah. where the uh, ostentatious host comes out for one scene just so that we can identify her body later. Like, <laughs> there, there's a moment where, because Arthre obviously he's, um, he's investigating this potential financial fraud and he asks or she, she kind of corners him, but he eventually ends up, you know, uh, trying to answer the question of, are you here to investigate my archaeological dig? Do you think that I'm guilty of fraud? Yes. And everybody is watching the two of them. Everything is so incredibly tense. What was once a lively party has become, a, you know, a, a tomb, basically. Everyone's wondering what Arthreo is going to say. The thing I love, the thing I love about that particular moment is that it makes it very clear that M.M. is able to make people talk. Yes. And that inevitably means that someone else in the story has blabbed something to her, and that is probably why she's dead. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's cool. I I think that for being in one scene, she really does make an impact, and you can kind of, you can feel her her impact and her her decisions that she's made before the plot even started throughout the rest of the novel, which I actually think is really well done. The other really interesting character that we meet to me, and I'm sure (laughs) to you heard the only other one is Nazreen. Oh my goodness. As opposed to Nazneen. Um, Yes. (laughs) It's great. So Nazneen is the princess who, or the, the not to be princess Mm. who ran away with Vanraj Singh. Her love. To uh, Nas Tapu and basically lived out their lives in seclusion there, their marriage having been tossed away from history by the prince's father. Yeah, they they destroyed all the images of of the two of them basically to try and cut them out of history. And and now we have this character called Nazreen who was essentially part of the archaeological dig. She's supposedly a native, but nobody really knows where she hails from specifically. Well, I mean, she seems to pretty heavily insinuate that she's from the island, she regardless does. of what the truth is. She, she does, but look, <laughs> I can't just tell you what's going on, Blake. Like, I'll leave some mystery here for you to solve. Well, but yeah. she's, she's, a, she's like spooky and ghost-like. She doesn't make any sound when she appears, and she's it's all so romantic great. and poetic. It's crazy. When they first came across her, I thought they'd found the corpse. Ah. Because it's like, ah, oh, he noticed he noticed a person to his left, and I was like, ah, oh, he's going to look over and see the body, <laughs> and it's going to be like, oh, crazy, what happened here? But no, it's just this weird, creepy ghost girl who Damn. follows them around, knows everything yes. that's happened, has perfect eyesight, knows the entire layout of this cursed and she, island. And she leads oh, them. I love it. She leads them to the body. Like- 
She's a great, she's a great character. The next thing I wanted to talk about, because obviously we're, we're clawing at the mystery here and we'll definitely get into that in the next part of the show. Mm. But there's turns of phrases that feel weird to me. Yes. There's like characters who will often really bluntly restate things that are super obvious. Can I tell you, I, I thought the exact same thing about Fraudster. Yeah. Some of the characters, the way their dialogue is written is unwieldy yeah. might be the right term, <laughs> mm. I think. I'm not sure what the source is exactly. Well, my, my assumption I, is is that because Avi Rahman has learned English in India because he lives there. Yeah. But the thing that I found really interesting about it, it was always endearing in a way because you could tell what Avi Rahman was excited about when he was writing. I mean, it's weirdly evocative of like the experience of reading an older novel. And this yeah. is going to sound a bit silly, I'm sure. But like when I read an older novel and I notice, you know, the turns of phrase that I have to look up. Or that I go, oh, I I feel clever that I know what that phrase means, you know. I felt kind of similarly. I I kind of enjoy it. The best one to me was there's a moment where Avi Rahman says in like the narrator's voice, basically, and this was the moment that Harith Athreya learned this thing about a character. And it's the only time it's happened so far in the novel. It feels so wildly out of place. But you can just feel Avi Rahman like sincerely reminiscing on that murder mystery style of writing and just being like, yeah, I'll just throw it in. And it feels great. Yeah, it it doesn't feel like clinical or like too overwritten or anything like that. It, It has that homeliness. The other one that I really loved was when we arrive at the compound for the first time for like archaeological dig mm. and Harith Athreya points and goes, ah, look, eight rooms that only open one way and you can only leave. So silly. He's like, ah, the locked room. I've spotted it before it's happened. It's great. And there's a map in the book too, or at least in the yeah. area. You know, like it's like, this is where all the rooms are and they open out like this. Ugh. It doesn't need to be this golden age detective fiction, but clearly Rahman couldn't hold himself back. Yeah, either way, we should wrap this discussion here and we'll be back to talk about that same mystery when we get to the end of the show. We're discussing Avi Rahman's A Dire Isle, chapters one to eight. Stick with us. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you. We are in the middle of a crime fiction journey through India. And in that spirit, joining us today is PhD student Nkita Rathur, based out of Louisiana State University. She's a scholar of India's crime writing, a published author and a poet. Her PhD thesis theorizes the post-colonial dead girl trope in Bollywood and popular Indian Anglophone fiction. Ankita, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So India has been a part of the crime fiction community for generations now, and many of the authors we've been taking a look at grew up with the golden age of detective fiction. But what was the genesis of local crime writing? I've heard a lot about a character called Faluda by Satyajit Ray. Is that where it started? And who are the other big names? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's where I started, uh, you know, reading. uh, That's how my crime fiction and crime story journey started, because I grew up with Satyajit Ray's Faluda to his, you know, the short stories and even the TV series. So uh, definitely that's uh, there. And also there was this TV show called Tehkikat, which was which literally translates to investigation. And uh, and that I thought the two characters, Sam De Silva uh, and his associate, they reminded me a lot of Sherlock Holmes and Watson, for sure. But when it comes to local writers, I feel like it has been uh, I would I would contextualize that Indian crime fiction in the post liberalization era 
after the 1991, when India's economy liberalized and then, you know, Penguin Random House and all these publishing houses came in. And that's, I think, that's where I would see the writing going up, more and more writers and authors writing about that. I mean, like authors like Avi Rahman, whose novel we're exploring at the moment, A Dire Isle, have said a lot about the influence of big names in English writing, uh, like Christie, Ian Fleming, and so on, on his work. What about India's influences internally? I've heard you speak about a link between Bollywood and India's crime fiction. How do they kind of overlap? That, that's exactly what I'm exploring in my thesis, actually, because uh, for me, you know, when I, when I see myself as as a consumer of Indian crime stories, for me, Bollywood films and this crime story were going hand in hand. There are spy thrillers and everything. And I could see those overlapping, the themes and everything, especially uh, considering writers like Kulpreet Yadav, they heavily uh, borrow the aesthetics of Bollywood, which is interesting because whenever they would go on their book announcement or something, it will be some Bollywood actor, some Bollywood figure doing that for them. And I, I, I found those connections uh, very interesting. Bollywood has been influential in terms of just popular fiction as well. For example, writers like Chetan Bhagat, who who made fiction very accessible to the masses. You know, the, the books were selling at like 95 rupees and everybody could have it. Yeah. And then they get, you know, they, then they get adapted into big movies. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the authors that we've been speaking about on the show so far are expatriates or the children of expatriates writing and reflecting on India from afar or based on their travels there. One thing I noticed is that a lot of these expatriate authors challenge what they see as problematic norms and corruption in India. How do domestic authors approach their cultural taboos differently? I, I find it a bit similar. I find, I find it very complex. I have seen expatriate writers also kind of indulging in, in, in what I say, kind of a reorientalizing of the Indian scape, you know. And when it comes to local writers, one of my favorite crime fiction writers is Ankush Saikia. I find his work very exhilarating because it is also tackling all these issues, you know, the North Indian dominance and how Northeast is kind of forgotten or the corruption, bureaucratic corruption. And I think local writers have done that. Even when we talk about Indian fiction, they have been doing that for so long. Yeah. Now you mentioned there Ankush Saikia, which is how I originally found your work. The thing you mentioned in that review is that despite doing really well compared to a lot of writers, Saikia still kind of falls on the dead girl trope a little bit. And even though, you know, that is still evolving and things are still getting better, do you feel that India is lagging behind in some ways? Why is that something that you're focusing on in your in your thesis? When I was engaging in the American culture, there was a rising criticism against the dead girl trope. And I was like, OK, what about the post-colonial dead girl trope? Like we have dead girls in movies, in fiction, uh, you know, like, for example, in um more Bodies Will Fall. I love that book, by the way. But then I was like, OK, the dead girl, Amela, dies but only to enhance the detective's uh, story. And, and then the whole Northeast region takes prominence over the dead girl, mm. which for me was very complicated because, you know, uh, on one hand, I was like, okay, this is, this is needed because a lot of North Indians do not get this example of engaging with a book that is exploring Northeast region beyond the dominant North Indian uh, characterization of it. But mm. then I was like, okay, but... It's, it's, it's going through the dead girl and the dead girl emerges as this even deconstruction of the nationalist ethos. But again, the question is, what are we doing <laughs> with the dead girl? Yeah. But a lot of women writers, for example, female crime fiction writers, when I engaged with their book, 
I find that they're doing a lot better job. For example, Sujata Messi's detective is a woman mm. and it's a very complex layered character. And same with Kishwar uh, Desai, like this violated, brutalized women, but through an equally complex, vulnerable female detective. And I find that very interesting because I feel like the women writers are definitely doing a lot better job in subverting for sure well yeah i mean beyond the feminist critique in some ways like you mentioned earlier that a lot of you know bollywood cinema makers are writing books and i've also noticed that a lot of english language indian crime fiction is from wealthy writers you mentioned like kishwa desai who was married to a british lord avi rahman came from the kpmg finance world you know, obviously that problem isn't exclusive to India since the creative arts can be a bit of an unattainable luxury to many. But I feel like the language barrier and the financial barrier could be in the same place for many Indian creatives. Is that the case? And has there been any positive change on that front? I have a complicated answer, but that's for sure. The class and the caste aspect is something that has dominated uh, Indian fiction in general. You know, a lot of Dalit writers uh, never got published. Uh, and they were writing in their regional languages. So there are a lot that can be said here. And of course, there is a privilege. There is a privilege of access. There is a privilege of education, where you get educated, where you travel, and, and what kind of consciousness you are, you know, you are amassing, you're bringing, and how you're writing. So there is definitely a lot of that, definitely a class issue. And it is definitely changing. In a, for example, in the Indian uh, crime fiction, when I see women are dominating, and that is there are so many women writers who are doing just incredible work. And, and uh, I remember mm. uh, I was reading Neil Mayer's, uh, uh, you know, analysis on the Indian crime fiction. And, and in one of his papers, he says that, yeah, it feels like Indian crime fiction, just the genre suits women. Like a lot is happening. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So that's de there's definitely that. I mean, I'm I'm also just trying to be a more optimistic person. So I think definitely it is changing for the better. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, the other thing that I found really interesting, you know, talking about that, like language barrier and where people are writing from is I noticed that, like a lot of Indian crime fiction authors, they write Indian English, if that makes sense. You know, there are turns of phrase that to me as a native English speaker, I'm like, hold on, you, how, you, you phrase that in what way? That doesn't make sense to me. But there's also something really sincere, genuine, and it like, gives a unique voice to crime fiction. You know, why should, I guess, Western readers not be so skeptical about those oddities when they're reading crime fiction from abroad? Great question again. And again, I think there is something, uh, you know, just genuine and just like, you know, it punches up to your Orientalist conditioning of how you receive a novel. And and that's what India is, you know. Shashi Tharoor has written about it, that Indian English is not an incorrect form of English. When we were colonized and English was given to us, what do we do with the language? So we make our own words. And I think skepticism makes sense that, okay, you are coming across something you're not familiar with. But I think that can also be a moment of great revelation. This tells you that English as a lingua franca is very moldable. It's not a very fixed identity and people can subvert it. I find that endearing. I also find that very real because that's how I grew up. I will always mix Hindi yeah. words with English. Obviously, for my uh, friends, not, uh, you know, non-Indian and especially Western friends, it was always something humorous. 
but but they never really like they never made fun of it but they were like oh this is interesting mm. tell us more i mean and if you know multiple languages code switching is just kind of fun exactly You're just like this exactly. word doesn't exactly <laughs> get to what i want to say so i'll use the one that does exactly exactly and i think it's it's fun it's it's good to be maybe challenged a little bit of what english should look like for sure yeah, all right. Well, I think that's going to be the time that we have, Ankit. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you on the show and getting to delve into your work. Thank you so much. It's just been a pleasure doing this. I mean, it means a lot to me. Oh, to nerd out about crime fiction in Bollywood, you got me. <laughs> Fantastic. We will have links up on the podcast to Ankita's work if you want to check out more of it. We are discussing Avi Rahman's A Dire Isle, and we'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, discussing R.V. Rahman's A Dire Isle, chapters one to eight, the second novel in the Harith Athreya series. Herds, Flex. I am overjoyed <laughs> that really? I get to be in the hot seat for this one because it's going to be so easy for you me. You think this is going to be the easiest four points you ever got in your life? I, what, well, I, let's let's just get started with the basics. We broke down uh-huh, the, mm-hmm. the summary of the plot at the start of the show. So if you missed out on that, you can always go check it on the podcast. Or if you are on the podcast, hi, welcome. Welcome. But we have Nazarene, who is a magical mystery girl. She's a ghost girl. She's great. There are two types of mystical girl mysteries, Ben. Yep. One where the mystery girl is always to be believed, no matter how suspicious she makes herself. And the other where she's given a bulletproof (laughs) alibi, but her methods surpass the world of ballistics. And the question, I mean, that's the question, isn't it? Is she leading us down the garden path to truth and freedom and the American way, or is she secretly about to throw a ghost dagger in our detective's back? Because I don't think you could take any more of those. I was I was a fraction of a second away from taking a sip of water, and that could have ended very badly. <laughs> I'm glad to t- cause you discomfort in your time of supposed triumph flex. Uh, yeah, but no, it's, it's but great you, fun. What are you thinking? My, yeah. my assumption out the gate is that if we are going to get any sort of mysticism, it's going to be that there's, there's a weird miasma in the fog from that island and everyone's hallucinating the ghost girl that'd be pretty cool but a collective I, hallucination of the ghost a collective girl? hallucination Wouldn't that'd yeah. be great i believe that i think that's an excellent theory you should run with it flex but <laughs> this week herds i want to lean on on a different uh, a different branch herds this is only going to make sense to you but i promise i will i will summarize it in a way that is understandable to mm. the outside world sure sure good luck i was once the leader of a gang called the pearl runners what a terrible this, gang. this was in an imaginary world where we rolled dice to make decisions and herds was god you, you could have just called yourself the, the the leader of the bronze runners but it's true i was god it was great I miss being God. If there's one thing that I remember from being a gang boss, it's that the best place to hide your gang other than in plain sight is in the place that nobody's going anyway because they're all too scared of it. Mm -hmm. So obviously the Bronze Runner's base is on Nas Tapu. And since the dig site that we're at is the closest one, obviously this dig site has been wildly infiltrated. You've obviously got a theory there, but there's also obviously the murder of MM. Yes. Was that a bronze runner? Was that somebody else? Is this a coincidence? Also, uh, there's talk of financial fraud. Now we know that Mr. Avi Rahman is a a financial genius. Clearly that's part of the mystery. (laughs) So I'd love to know how these three elements kind of tie in together. Well, I think the main thing is deciding who the bronze runner was because- Mm. 
it's either got to be that MM was a bronze runner and someone found out. Yeah, sure. Uh, or it is that the bronze one runners were found out by MM and had to stop her from leaking the news. Sure. I like I like these ideas. I think that scene that I mentioned in the first part of the discussion where she gets Harith Athreya to talk about why he's there is the most indicative one to me. Because if she's able to get people talking, mm. it means that she can probably get people to blab about where goods are. Okay. Right? I like it. I like it. Particularly because we've had this mention of uh, a character who, let me let me pull up this description, was medium height, chubby and attractive, with long black hair, was elegantly dressed in an expensive looking serene. Mm. I'm going to say that this, this fence who ran away and was never caught was in fact M.M. Oh, now that is an angle. Yeah. I guess you think that you think that MM is like a fence and is like part of the bronze runners or is that what you're thinking? That's like the vibe here. Yeah. And and I think that basically she was found out and tried to escape and someone stopped her, but made a mess of it. Yeah. So the, the story here is that she's found her archeological team or she has, or whatever, they've found a ring and a bracelet mm-hmm. possibly on the cursed Island. That's like kind of the implication yes. here. Like, why not just leave with that stuff? Why even, like, why not just, like, go to the hideout or whatever? Like, the fact that it's unusual that she was spotted on the island and brought these goods back from the island, the fact that she shouldn't be there is why I lean on this side of that she's the bronze runner and not that she found the bronze runner, because I think that she was caught out bringing these goods back to try and fence them and then tried to cover it up by saying like, oh, I had another dig site going over there. Okay, I like that. Nazreen here is obviously the clinch because she's obviously seen a bunch of these things. She's the mystical girl who sees all. That's her role in the story. Of course she is. She knows everything. That's how it works. Yeah. So my assumption is that a lot of this is covering up for the things that Nazreen has seen and making excuses Mm -hmm. uh, and that those excuses have finally caught up with her. Interesting. And the one that I want to push on here is Adira and Madav. Interesting. Madav yeah. is a character who was excommunicated, <laughs> was, let's say. Yeah, fired. He was fired. For breaking their NDA. Yeah. He's still there and everyone on the team is still talking with him? Yeah, it seems like there's like some drama or maybe because uh, MM has instituted this NDA so that if anybody finds anything at the site, they're like not supposed to tell anybody. Totally. And Adira is really interesting here because she's in a like fling that they basically say with Mm, Madav. And that seems to be Madav's excuse for sticking around, even though he kind of has no other reason to. Okay. And I'm kind of wondering if he was sent there, Madav was sent there to investigate MM and is using Adira as an excuse to stick around and continue his investigation. And maybe that's why Liam Dunn has sent Harith Athreya because Perhaps Liam is running the investigation right, right. and it got found out. It's a two-pronged, a two-pronged assault, as it were. But yes. Madav's out, Athreya's in. I like it. Um, there, there are a couple of other characters as part of the team. There's Dr. Corder, who looks like Christopher Lee in Monk cosplay. There's Dr. Sevier Which Bay, is a great description. I love the scene. I love the scene <laughs> where they're like, Christopher Lee did play Saruman. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the little girl, Mupriya, is saying... Dr. Corder, he's so scary. He looks like Count Dooku or maybe uh, Saruman. And you're like, well, that is the same actor. He's like, yeah. He's like, oh, really? Interesting. I didn't realize. <laughs> it's, it's pretty great. It's just so quaint. Yeah, I loved like, it. There's, there's the Doctor's Corder. There's Sabia Brake, who's the deputy director of the dig. There's uh, here, as you mentioned, 
Like, there's all these different characters, Mithali and Olhas, who are, like, a, a couple who are working as part of the team. Like, Oh, yeah, and Mithali is definitely not the chemist that she claims to be. What What do you figure about that? You think Because it is mentioned, like, she's overworked. What, what's going on with her? There has to be something that she's lying about. Sure. Uh, she was maybe my second guess for the other fence, but they clearly- in fact, they have weirdly opposite descriptions. Avi Rahman describes Mitali twice when he barely <laughs> ever describes any other character more than once. Yeah, yeah. And that did strike me as odd. I don't think we've had enough time to tell. You can just tell that they're not there for the reasons they say they are. Yeah, I think the only other thing I want to kind of touch on is we've mentioned this this myth about uh, Nazneen and, and Van Raj Singh, yeah. who, you know, they run away to the island. And it, it, many, many times Atreya says, wow, this seems, this sounds a lot like history mixed up in myth. That's mm-hmm. very interesting. It's crazy how history works like that. Now, obviously, it goes without saying that Atreya is is onto something here. Yes. Flex, what do you, how do you think that this, this like, story, this romantic mythic story of monsters and bowlers and all this nonsense. Like, how, how does this shake out in the present day? I kind of like the idea that the entire story is just true. The sorcery is real? Okay. The, the only really properly mystical part about it is, as you say, the sorceries of how she, like, made the family sick and stuff. Mm. But there's very mundane explanations. I, I, th- I think that the results of all of the verb actions in the myth are yeah. probably true. Just the verbs are replaced with something more mystical. As for the effect that it has on the current day, yeah. I, I really am struggling to have a like solid guess, but I will say that my my absolute hope is that it turns out that Nazreen actually is just the descendant of this family and they've been secretly living in the area, keeping watch over their kingdom all of this time as like sure. l- a last laugh against this king that excommunicated him because they're still here, but he isn't. Yeah, I'm mostly just curious about your thoughts. I'm not looking to like- you know, give me your definitive theory right yeah, now. I, I'm not. I'm not having any points. No, wait no, on no. this. I hope. No, no, no. <laughs> we'll we'll wait points next week. Don't you? Worry. I've got some some things I want to pick your brain at. But I think I think that's all I have to ask you for now. For next week, we'll be covering chapters nine to sixteen. Alrighty. Well, Herds, thank you very much for introducing this novel to me. I've been having an absolute blast with it. I hope you catch those filthy bronze runners. I certainly prove hope that so. you're the the silver runner that will outpace them. <laughs> I hope I hope that they get away on a train as a large black cloud slams down on the valley. Spoilers: that uh, train definitely crashes. Hole. That train definitely crashes. Let's be real. Uh, we we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure, but maybe we'll find out. Maybe we on will. the next time of Death of the Reader. <laughs> this is your Murder Mystery World tour here on 2SER. We'll see you next week with more of A Dire Isle by Avi Rahman. We're out of here. Why couldn't they be called the Gold Runners?